Good morning, church. Welcome. Would you stand with me? So this morning, I want to read something to you um, from the Psalms. And this is from Psalm 148. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise the Lord from the heights above. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at His command they were created, and He established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. So let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Would you praise the Lord with me this morning? He is good. And his word says that even the rocks will cry out. So I hope you'll join with me this morning in praising him. And your word is a lamp unto Yeah. 
Make sense in the future's unsure. I look at my past. 
Father, we love you. I thank you for this truth that we're singing about right now. And we declare just that, that it is truth. That it's not a concept or an idea, 
or maybe one thing among many beliefs, but it's, it's the truth. You are good. Now we recognize that today that there is pain and there is suffering and there is a lack of goodness in some respects in our lives, but the person that you are is good. And we thank you that we can lean in on that truth. And I know that some of us may need to declare that truth in complete and utter faith, just without feeling, without emotion, because maybe those are flying in the opposite direction, but just that we would declare you're, you're good, you're good, that you're going with us, that if we're in a valley, if we're in the darkness, that you're going with us, that you never leave us, that you never forsake us, that you know where we're at. You haven't forgotten. You don't, it's not that you don't understand. You do understand, and you're waiting sometimes on us to lean on you, lean in to you. So right now, I just want to stir our faith as a group of people to say we are leaning. We lean in. We lean in to you. Just like the disciple John kind of leaned into you, onto your chest, Jesus, when you were on this earth, we lean into you now. And we love you. Church, we're going to do what we do, which is um, we're going to make room for offering here. And uh, we're going to sing one more song. You are welcome to give. During that song, if you would like, uh, we've got offering buckets up here at the front. <clears throat> got the green box in the back. And um, this lady's talking in my head. She needs to stop. Um, so we would encourage you to give today as you feel led. If you are new with us, I'm looking around the room, I don't know if you're new with us. We don't expect anything from you, um, and we really don't, can't judge what anybody should give, whether you've been here a long time or not. Um, we would ask that you would give as you're led by your Father. Uh, I think we probably would could agree scripturally that we should all give something. Um, the poorest of the poor in, in the Bible gave uh, a little, and God honored that a great amount. I mean, Jesus actually honored that more than the people who had a greater gift to give because it didn't require as much sacrifice. So giving appears to be about our trust, whether we trust someone to be sacrificial. And so um, you can give online as well. Um, but we're going to do one more song, and you're welcome to give in that song as an act of worship because we do believe that giving is worship. It's attention, it's adoration, and it's in a very tangible way. So God, would you bless offerings and gifts that are given today? And James, the scripture tells us that every good and every perfect gift comes down from you, our Father. So what we came in today with, whether we feel like it's even just breath in our lungs, energy to walk, that is from you. And we thank you for that today. So probably a lot of us have forgotten 
to do that today. Thank you for the breath that we have as an opportunity to sing these songs. Thank you for the, the muscles that moved this morning walking in here. Thank you for the needs that you've met in our lives financially and spiritually and physically. And today as we continue our worship through giving and more singing, we give you all the glory and all the praise because there is no one more worthy than you of our attention. Sing with us. You were the word at the beginning. One with God, the Lord most high. Hidden glory in creation. Now revealed in you, our Christ. What a beautiful name it is.
So we got Jeff, Dale, Sandy maybe. Sandy may be busy. They're going to come up here and help us with something. Uh, we mentioned Pastor's Appreciation. Y'all can sit if you want to sit. Pastor's Appreciation National Day was last Sunday. Uh, we we kind of pulled the old like psych type of thing. I don't know. It was probably psych's too old for a lot of y'all. Do y'all know what psych means? No, no. Blank stares. So, uh, but today we would like to honor our wonderful pastors. last Sunday, but uh, made it this Sunday. This whole month it really is. So what I'd like to say, since I like to talk about you know, the Word of God, and you know, we are to judge our pastor in a way. And, you know, not that big word on judging where Jesus says judge not, but, but there is a, a smaller word on that. We are to evaluate. We are to test the Spirit. You know, see it is from God or not. You know, Jesus gave, you know, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to the church. And pastor and teacher is a gift from the Lord. So how do we evaluate that, that he's a pastor and teacher, you know, for us? Well, if you read the book of First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, it says a lot of things, but I'm going to sum it up in our vernacular today. There's three things, three things that most ministers end up ha- hanging themselves on. And that's pride, it's money, and that's sex. And so evaluate that. Do you see our pastor and his family one of humility or one of pride? You see, is he, a, you know, assumptuous, presumptuous, or is he one who lets you speak? Nothing about money. You know, he's been here about eight years. And, you know, he gets, you know, he gets paid, paid a salary here, but he doesn't know, you know how much people give here. He doesn't give any attention to that kind of stuff. He doesn't preach based on what's going to bring people in. is isn't based on how much money I can get the offering. He doesn't do that, but you evaluate that. And then, of course, the last one, the sex. Has he ever said anything offensive to your wife? Has he said anything offensive to anybody else? We are to evaluate those things to see if he's from the Lord. Now, you know, First and Second Timothy and Titus has a lot more about, you know, being in the Word of God and praying, giving yourself, to, you know, to study the Word and praying and all that kind of stuff. But I'm talking about the three things that bring down a whole lot of ministers in our nation. So I want you to evaluate that this time. Okay, thank you, guys. Um, I'm going to start out by, I need to tell you something about myself before I can tell you about them. October of 2020, anybody remember 2020? What 2020 was famous for? October of 2020, I was diagnosed with cancer. I revealed that to our pastor and his wife and some of the other people here I really didn't know what to do with that at the moment because I'm uh, I believe in not not necessarily accepting information from the devil not accepting information that's a curse 
or anything that would destroy us, so I didn't speak about it. Then, ultimately, as I was taking my first step to find out about this cancer, I diagnosed with COVID, ended up in the hospital, 22, 23 days in the hospital. Since that time, I've had a journey. I've had a journey of healing that's taken place mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. But all during that process, our pastor and our pastor's wife, Stephen Pam, have prayed for Sandy, called her, texted her, FaceTimed. We've had several members of our body because of the leadership of our church and the openness of our church that reached out and took care of her while I couldn't take care of anything and then in the process have taken care of me when I couldn't take care of myself. So my gratitude to Pam and Steve, and I bring this up for one reason. Steve has honored to not reveal any of that to anybody. He's wanted to reach out, caught himself a time or two. But his honor for me, he's not been shared that with anybody. And I'm saying that today as a testimony that if you go to Steve and Pam with a problem, they are our pastors. They're the shepherd of the flock that you can trust them to be honorable with your problem, your secret, your demon, whatever's plaguing you, if you need we need each other, but sometimes it's very hard to bring that need into public, so you, if you have it that way and you need to bring it into privacy and then when it's time to be revealed in public, you have a foundation and support of those who have honored you and so I honor you guys today for doing that for us and our whole lead team here honors you and we're going to take a minute if you want to give a special offering bucket on top is a special offering for Pam and Steve and then we're going to take this time to allow everyone right to come by give them a hug shake hands Tell them how much you love them, if you love them. Tell them how much you appreciate them, if you appreciate them. Amen to that. So let's pray real quick. Father in heaven, we just thank you for this opportunity. And we thank you as a body for Pam and Steve. We know so much work goes behind the scenes that no one knows that they do. You said in your word that whatever we do in secret we would be rewarded for in public. So today, I just publicly reward and honor them in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, y'all are free. While you're stirring, I am going to highlight three announcements. Um, One is we, uh, pre-teens life group, did y'all make a name for that? No. They're like, we don't need a name. Student nights. Okay. Well, don't forget 
put peer pressure on your mom and dad tonight uh, is the life group for 10 to 14 year olds and it is at six 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 o'clock here at the church led by um, Logan and Haley and uh, second is we got the annual harvest party coming up which you cannot miss or you'll be totally uncool Um, so that's my prayer pressure to you will you roll the video that has been made we want to show you some of the past fun so I appreciate y'all so much it means a lot to us and um, got a little feedback going on I want to share just a couple of things with y'all before I get started um and that is that somebody asked me this morning about Emory Richardson. Uh, this week, uh, she came down with a little bit of fever, actually a lot of fever, and ended up in the ER. They were talking about her having leukemia and all kinds of stuff, and I mean, lots of scary things. And she ended up at uh, OU Children's, and we had prayed for her that night, and um, and we prayed for her to to be healed, and for all those scary things that were being uh, pronounced on her to to be nothing. And uh, that's what it turned out. The, the these ER doctors kept on saying, um, uh, kept on, I mean, just having scary things because the. They said, she doesn't have any infections that we can identify, so she must, have, she must have cancer or something like that, which is, uh, was wrong. Uh, and if you know Emery, you know that there's nothing wrong with her and, um, except too much energy. I wish I could have a little bit of whatever she's got. But, um, and... And we prayed for them to get to a place where they could have the right diagnosis and get the right report and all that kind of stuff. And the doctor said, no, I don't think that any of that stuff is going on. There is a, he just said, there's a thing we can't identify and ended up letting her go home. And so she's taking, she has having her blood uh, analyzed again tomorrow and, uh, to, and we want her white counts to come down uh, to because they were very high, indicated she had some kind of severe infection. So we're praying for her, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to voice a prayer uh, that I'm going to ask you to agree with in just a moment. And we're also praying, I want to pray for Juliet. Is that okay? You sure? You say no. Um, she just had something, an ear infection or something in vertigo, and so she's been walking around very carefully this morning. And so I'm just going to pray for her too. Um, so, anybody else want to get prayed for by name? Landry? Your shoulder? Okay. I'll pray for that. Okay. Mr. Jackson? Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Let, then pray with me and agree with me in prayer, if you will. Uh, the word says if we, we, two or more agree as touching anything, they have what they ask for. So let's just pray for that right now. Father, we just lift these up to you right now. Um, for Landry, for Emery, for her uh, 
report to come back well, uh, good tomorrow for Juliet, for her ear to be um, healed, for, for anyone else who is, has pain right now. I just pray in Jesus' name for supernatural healing, just right this moment, that it would be, uh, there would be no pain, that people would be able to sleep well, and um, Father, we just trust you to give good things, just like we sang about a little bit ago, that everything good comes from you, and you only do good things. So we pray in Jesus' name for, for that right now, and claim your promises in his name, amen. All right. Um, all right. Revelation chapter 2. I don't know if when I was a kid, uh, and I'm talking about a young teenager, when the book of Revelation came up, it kind of gave me the willies. The hair on the back of my neck would rise up and... Because um, there was there were a lot of movies back then about weird, crazy stuff out of Revelation. If you read the book of Revelation, there's some pretty crazy stuff. You know, there's these scorpions that fly, and I, that's a little bit. That's my b- big pr- problem is scorpions that fly. Um, anybody else can relate to that? The scariest thing from The Wizard of Oz for me was flying monkeys. So any, pretty much anything that shouldn't be flying, that does fly, especially if it's got pinchers and stingers on its tail, yeah, I don't need any of that. So, But in the beginning, uh, the first, uh, few chap- first three chapters of Revelation are a lot different. Um, and in chapter 2 and chapter 3, there are letters, seven letters to seven churches in Asia. Uh, it just so happens that n- only one of those churches still exists today. Um, and it's the one we're looking at today. But all those other churches have been wiped out. And, and part of the point of the letters is, he says, straighten up or I'm going to uh, I'm snuff out your candle. Because there, were seven, there was a candlestick that had seven candles on it. And it represented each of the seven churches in Asia. And the, the seven churches have meant a lot of different things and different interpretations through the ages. Um, I, I'm going to tell you that I think that the seven churches talks about seven different problems in the church. And that if you find yourself in that, a, a, a spiritual issue that you have that's represented in one of the letters to one of those churches, then it's a word for you. It may also be a word to the church in general, to look, things to look out for in your church. But it was, in fact, a, just like if I wrote a letter to Jimmy Jones here and, that, and addressed it to him and he got it out of the mailbox in, on the front of his house, that... Jimmy would know that it has his name on it, and it's a letter that says stuff to him, and he would recognize, oh, well, Steve meant for me to, that, that word in that letter is for me. That's exactly the way it was for those seven churches. They were seven actual churches that Paul, that had been visited by Paul and others in their missionary journeys, and they were, in fact, in a circle in what 
in the Bible times they called Asia. And it was what was in between the, the biblical area that we think of like Israel and Syria and all that kind of stuff on the east side of the Mediterranean. Between that and, and then Greece and Rome is where that Asia was. We know it as Turkey today. And um, they were the seven churches are a circle. And it starts with Ephesus and goes in a clockwise fashion to the next church and the next church and the next church in a clockwise circle. So just for your information, I want you to picture that, that that's what we, that what we have in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, starting with, and this is going to be the third one. I mentioned the second one last week, just in a few minutes that we had before um, the video message started. And so this is the third church, and we're going to talk about them one by one as we've gone. And so we started with Ephesus, and we're at Pergamum right now. Pergamum or Pergamos uh, is that, first, uh, that third church and what we're looking at today. It says in verse 12 of chapter 2, And to the angel uh, in Pergamos write, comma, Stop right there, because I'm going to talk about Pergamos. Pergamos was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. So it was in, in the, kind of in the middle of this Asian area, kind of in the northern Turkey today. And it was the Roman capital of that whole province. The provinces were all divided up, and it was the, the Roman government center for that area. It was also the center of pagan worship that worshiped several gods. Uh, the, it, it just so happens it's the same Greek gods that because the Greek culture had existed before. But these are the Roman gods, and those gods were Bacchus, also known as Dionysius, which I don't know why he had two names like that, but I think Dionysius was the Greek name he had before. But he was the god of alcohol. And um, he, they, they worshipped him there and, and everything about him. And also the gods Asclepios, Asclepios, who was a serpent god of healing. In fact, on the, in the doctor's office, when you, there's that stick with the serpent on it, that's, that's, that, that's why that serpent's on there. It's this here. Um, and then the worship of Zeus, who was the father of the Roman gods. Zeus. That's important. Remember that. The worship of Caesar also originated in Pergamos. So the cult of worshiping Caesar as a god, as a, as a divine being, it all started in Pergamos. So a lot of, I mean, it was a center of a lot of, yeah, kind of pagan worship stuff, Right? So to the angel of Pergamos, right, and that's what it was famous for. Um, some, some of the churches are compared to cities that we know today. Like one of the churches is compared to New York City because it was a center of banking and all that kind of stuff, and we'll talk about it later. Um, it, uh, one of them is compared because it was a center of government. Uh, it was re uh, referred to as the Washington, D.C. of that area, this would be referred to as either the Las Vegas or maybe the Hollywood of, 
of that day. Okay? So he says, this thing says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Everybody know what a sharp two-edged sword is? It's like a a sword that you normally think of that has two edges on it, hacks both ways, stabs, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I know your works. That's Jesus, by the way. The Jesus in Revelation is a lot different from the Jesus in other places. Uh, and, And we'll talk about that some other time. But this is Jesus who is, uh, is uh, dictating these letters. He's, uh, so he's told John, and it's the John, the, the same John as the disciple John, the same John that wrote the Gospel of John and wrote the three letters that also have his name, First John, Second John. Can anybody guess what the third one was? Yeah, Third John. Um, so, and then that John... While he's exiled in Patmos, when he's about 90 years old, is told, write these things down. He says to the church at Pergamos, write this. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So two times, Pergamos is described as that place where Satan dwells. In fact, where Satan's throne is. So I'm going to talk about that for just a second. I mentioned to you that the worship of Zeus happened there. Zeus is the Roman, the father of all the Roman gods. Um, so the temple for the worship of Zeus was actually, it had in it, a giant, giant throne. So if you were just guessing, what do you think he's talking about when he says Satan's throne in those verses right there? If anybody thought about a throne of any kind that lived in Pergamos, I guarantee they thought about this giant throne of Zeus. That an Acropolis in Pergamos, which was is a, like on a cliffside, similar to the Roman, uh, the in Athens, Greece, the the Acropolis where uh, all the temples are in in Athens. You've seen pictures of it, that kind of thing. They had one of those too in Pergamos, and on that hill was the throne of Zeus where Satan's throne is. I believe that's what he's referring to right there. And there was a pastor in, at Pergamos, that's, at least who, that's who we think it was, who was named Antipas. Um, not Herod Antipas, if you've ever heard of a Herod. That was, the, uh, that was the Herod that was in charge when Jesus was crucified. Um, in Caesarea, he was the, the governor for Rome there, Herod Antipas. It's not that guy. This is a different guy named Antipas, and it's just his name. There's a lot of theories that it means anti, anti-pastoral or anti-pope or anti-something like that. That's silly. It's just his name. That was the guy's name back then. Um, but he was most likely the pastor there, and he had been mur- murdered by the Romans. Many people who were um, 
persecuted in the early days of the church were persecuted by the Jews, by the leaders of the Jewish religion, so the Sanhedrin and all that kind of stuff. Paul, when he was persecuting the church early on, he was doing it as a part of the Sanhedrin, and uh, a lot of people were killed that way. This most likely, in, since it's in a different place, it's in a Roman province, it's in the capital of the Roman province, he most likely was persecuted by the Romans, and his name was Antipas. The word for, um, for a witness, and the, many times the, the Christians who were killed were called witnesses, and the Greek word for that is martyrios, martyrios. M-A, like if you change the Greek letters to our letter system, the Roman letters, M-A-R, T-Y-R-I-O-S, Martyrios, M-A-R-T-Y-R, which is what martyr is. We borrowed our word for martyr from the Greek word, which was witness. And every place else in the New Testament, it is translated witness. But here, he's called my faithful martyr, Martyrios. And it's translated, not just witness, but martyr. Because he was one of the very first to be referred to that way. As someone who died because of their faith. And Jesus is commending the church right here for being willing to even die for their faith. You, even in the, when people are dying, you still stood up, he said, hold fast to my name in verse 13. And did not deny my faith, even in those days when he was martyred. He was killed among you where Satan dwells. So what is Satan represented, I believe, the Roman government, the Roman religion, Roman, all kinds of things. And he said, but you stood firm and didn't give in. The whole reason we figure out what this means is because... There may be a word in it for us, even today, 2,000 years later. These, this, the revelation was written when John was about 90 years old. So it's in the neighborhood of 60 years after Jesus is crucified. 60 years after. Jerusalem has already been destroyed. There is no temple anymore. And the Christians are beginning to be dispersed. So, verse 14 says, but I have these few things against you. Out of the seven letters, three of them have messages that say, you know, you did this good thing, but I have this against you. Here's this problem that you have. Three of them had that. Out of the other four, two had only good, Jesus only says good things about them. And the other one, Jesus only says bad things with nothing good at all. I mean, if I was, I'd want to either be, you just say good things about me, or at least that there are at least some good things to balance out the bad things. That's the where Pergamos is. He says, so you've, you've done good, not deny my faith, but I have these few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Talk about Balaam in just a second who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel 
to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I'm going to start with the sword of my mouth. Whatever that is, I don't know what it is, but it doesn't sound good. Would you agree with me? Ain't nobody got time for that. The sword of my mouth. I'm going to start with Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of God in the Old Testament. He wasn't part of the whole Jewish system. It's, the story is found in the book of Numbers. Um, that's why the children of Israel, in their 40 years of wandering, over in the book of Numbers, we run across this guy named Balaam. If you recall some of your Old Testament stories, you may remember a guy that was riding a donkey and the donkey starts talking to him. That was Balaam. And, and what it is is this guy named Balak, Balak, who was a king, uh, looks out and he sees these millions of Jews wandering for 40 years in the desert, wandering, wandering, and wandering. And they came up close to where his kingdom was. So close that he could go up on certain hills around the city where he is king, and he could look out and see them. And they weren't doing anything particularly, I mean... When people came out to fight with them, they fought and they won every single time. Because they were blessed of God. Anything they put their hand to prospered. They were blessed, blessed, blessed. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. These shoes are only like a, a year or year and a half old and they've, they're already flat on the soles. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. I mean, that's blessed. Would anybody like it for that? I'd like it for my boots. I mean, you can't buy a pair of leather boots anymore with a leather sole on the bottom. I, and I'm ADD and a little bit of hyperactivity. And so I always end up with a hole within three months uh, on the leather soles. Their shoes didn't wear out. Anyway, that's how blessed they were. Balak goes, man, I, I need somebody to come and curse those guys. Bless me and curse them. So... He says, go send for that guy named Balaam because he worships God and I can get him to bless me and curse them. And so he sends some guys to get him. And Balaam says, okay, stay the night. I'm going to pray about it tonight and I'll tell you in the morning. That's a, good, that's a good sign right there. And that may be a good word for us is to pray about things before you do them. But he says, stay here, stay the night. I'll take care of you, and in the morning, I'll tell you my answer. And in the morning, he's prayed to God all night, and God says, don't go. And he says, uh, okay. And he doesn't go. He tells them. They go back to Balak, and he says, what? I'm the king. I can reward him. I can give him anything he wants. I can give him any amount of money. I can give him power. I can give him anything. Go back and tell him that. And so he sends another group, and they tell him that. We'll give you anything. And so Balaam goes before God again, and God says, okay, just go on. Just go on. And starting with verse 26 of, X, of Numbers uh, chapter 22. Numbers 22, verse 26. Then the angel of the Lord, okay, he, 
Wait, I, I've, I'm a little ways into the story here. So he gets on his donkey to go with these guys. They're out waiting for him. And he gets on the donkey and starts to ride. And the donkey runs out in the field. And he says, no, we're going that way. And he beats the donkey for not doing the right thing. Then he, the donkey runs him into a wall. Um, and he beats the donkey again. And then there's a little squeezy place between two buildings and the donkey finally just lays down. Then the angel of the Lord, uh, and so here's that, where that is. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in the narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? Now, when it says, and the donkey spoke to Balaam, the Lord opened his mouth and he spoke to him, what that really means is that the donkey talked to him. The donkey talked to him. Anybody ever experienced that before? And I'm not talking about your husband, ladies. Not that kind of donkey. And if you read this in the King James, donkey does not, it doesn't say donkey anywhere there. I'll leave it to you to check out what it says instead. Don't anybody say. Um, opened the mouth of the donkey. What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? This donkey is smart. Balaam said to the donkey, because you've abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I'd kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you've ridden ever since I became yours? To this very day, and when did I ever dispose to do this to you? That's that's an amazing bit of logic for anyone. But for a donkey, that's really smart. He says, "What, what what kind of sense does that make? Have I ever done this to you before? You idiot. So the, and Balaam says, well, now that you mention it, no. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. He's already opened the donkey's eyes, and the donkey can see the angel. And I don't know how much y'all have studied angels, but they're pretty tall and scary, especially if they've got a sword. The Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I've come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would also have killed you by now and let her live. I mean, he's just pronounced the same kind of judgment that Balaam had on the donkey onto Balaam. I was ready to kill you with my sword, which, which he did have, by the way, which is a good reason why you should always have it. Better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Amen? Okay. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned. For I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it pleases you, I'll just, I'll turn back. To be fair, God told him, go ahead and go with those guys. But God already had a plan to, to set it up where he wouldn't just do whatever he wanted to do. 
And the angel of the Lord said, no, go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. And they go back. Um, the biblical account just continues uh, with King Balaam, King Balak, Balaam and Balak. I don't know. If I had written the story, I wouldn't have written it that way. But King Balak uh, is paying Balaam, offers him money and everything to bless him and curse the Israelites, um, which God had already said that you can't do. But three times he went with Balak and they offered sacrifices. Um, I don't know why um, Balaam went through all that. And there's some story that we don't see that's going on and that's not in this biblical account. Um, but Balak gets mad because three times he blesses Israel instead of cursing them. And Balak said, I could have got anybody to do that. Uh, so he gets mad and he eventually tells him to just go home. Uh, but the story continues after that, a separate story about the men of Israel and how they were enticed into marriage by Moabite women and they started worshiping idols and worshiping other gods of their wives, the gods that their wives had had, which was what God had told the Israelites in their 40 years of wandering, don't do this, and that's the very thing they did. Um... What's missing from the account in Numbers is what scribes and, and teachers of, of the religion stuff, the, their tradition was that Balaam had actually given Balak the plan on how to get the Moabite women to entice. And I don't know, I, I picture they dressed up like Jessica Rabbit and... Um, you know, sang, put on some music by Barry White and things like that, and just entice those men to come in and uh, do what people do and end up marrying them and getting stuck that way. That that was, the tradition says that that was the plan that Balaam gave Balak. I can't bless you. I can only bless them, but I, there's something that can happen here. And he got paid for that. And that that's what's referred to. And by the way, the word for stumbling block in here in Revelation chapter 2 is scandalon, which is where we get our word for scandal from. And don't you know it was a scandal? The Moabite women's scandal. That's what they called it. Moabite gate, they called it sometimes. So the, the word for the church in Revelation at Pergamos was the people who are leading you into sexual immorality and leading you into eating food sacrificed to idols. That was two of the three things that in the, some of the councils that the disciples and the, uh, the apostles had about what new converts that didn't come from Judaism, came from other places, Greek and, and Roman converts. He said... You know what? You don't have to go through all those Jewish rituals and all that kind of stuff, circumcision and everything. He said just three things. Um, and two of those things were don't eat food sacrificed to idols and don't get involved in sexual immorality. 
And so two of those things, the only three things that they were supposed to do, those two things they were doing here at Pergamos. He said, uh, and that disciple or teachers in the church, pastor leaders were telling people to do those things. The sin of Balaam was to try to get people involved in worshiping other gods and getting involved with sexual immorality. I'll just leave it at that. Because there were a lot of things that were going on in the religious temples that, I mean, part of their religious ceremonies were sexually immoral parties and things like that. So the pastors were compromising, saying, well, it... It'll be okay if you just do those things. So Pergamos is known in biblical interpretation as the compromising church. The compromising church. So verse 17 goes on, and it's the end. So they've got their word that you've You've compromised just like the Israelites did with the Moabite women. And it's brought in other idol worship and things like that. So verse 17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's what it says at the end of every letter, all the seven letters, right there. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's definitely a word for us today. If you have an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And I mean, this is not just a vague concept. The Holy Spirit speaks to us. He can help us understand the news. The Holy Spirit can help us understand what's going on in Israel and what the the impact is for the whole world. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So he's already said, you've you've done well to not deny me, but there's some of you who've messed up. So if you hear what I'm saying, straighten up, because if you overcome, I'm going to give you two things. One of them was the hit, some of the hidden manna to eat. There are a lot of th- theories about what the white stone and the hidden manna are. So the Ark of the Covenant that was in the tabernacle that traveled with the Israelites for 40 years. And that it, it's a complicated set of a tent set up, a tent over a tent, um, an altar, lampstands, a wash basin that the priests washed their hands in. Um, and, but the big thing inside it was the Ark of the Covenant. And dude, it was a fancy footlocker um, that had angels with wings touching each other on the top and the mercy seat. And they did all inside of this footlocker, this big box was um, 
One, the Ten Commandments were in there. So the two tablets that had the Ten Commandments on it, they're in there. Aaron's rod that was used for a lot of the miracles that happened. And a golden pot that was filled with some of the manna they ate in the desert. I don't know if you remember that story, but they were hungry and they were saying, why didn't you just let us die in Egypt? At least there were good cemeteries there and we could add a stone and all that kind of stuff. Here we're going to die in the desert. And so God said, oh, no problem. I'll feed you some. And so, so they wake up in the morning after God's told them this and there's this white stuff on the ground. Uh, I, th- I picture something that looks a little bit like cr- uh, cream of wheat or, you know, malto meal or something like that. And the the... The, the Israelites wake up and they say two words that no parent ever wants to hear. And Adriana, if your kids got up and came to the dinner table and said, what's this? How would you like that? That's what the word mana means. What's this? I picture Jack Skellington saying it, and some of y'all don't know what that is, but that's what I picture. What's this? Um, And so that's what they call this stuff. That's in a pot in this deal. When the Babylonians came and and stole everything that was in the temple, Jeremiah, the prophet, had taken the footlocker. He had to have some guys because anybody who touched it died, and there were poles in it that you'd pick it up to carry it. and so four guys, one on each pole, would, would carry this thing along. Jeremiah stole, the tradition says Jeremiah took it, didn't steal it. He took it to protect it, and he had hidden it out. And tradition was that one day Jeremiah would return and give people that manna to eat. And a lot of people, when they ask, is this Jeremiah when Jesus is feeding the 5,000? Is this Jeremiah come back from the dead? What do you think they thought the stuff that they were eating was that they were getting fed by Jesus when he fed 5,000 and 4,000? They said, is this Jeremiah? Because they thought that Jesus was somehow doing something with the manna because it was magical, whatever it was. All these people getting fed with nothing. So, that's the hidden manna that we're talking about right here. In Revelation chapter 2, he says, hang on, overcome, don't give in to all the enticements that you have to do other things. Be faithful to me and to my name, and I will give you some of the hidden manna to eat. Now, I don't know what the impact of eating the hidden... (laughs) Jen's making a face because she doesn't know what would that be like after, you know, 3,000 years in a pot in a box... Well, somehow, I think it was magically preserved and that whatever, it would be good to eat. For one thing, the manna, it was magical, everything that happened with the manna. Go back and read it in in the book of Exodus. But this hidden manna is something that, uh, that would be a blessing, apparently. Because if you, if you overcome, I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna. And all the, you had to be Jewish to know what that was. I don't know how all these other people in Asia would know, uh, but they're promised that. And the other thing is that they get a white stone. The white stone could be a lot of different things. Um, 
But it may be like the black beans at the Alamo, whoever got the black bean, that was the guy that had to ride out through and try to get the word out. Um, whatever it was, you didn't want a black bean. That usually meant that you were going to die. So a white, a white stone is a good sign. Um, it's a reward, whatever it is. But it's also, so it could be a vote for life, which maybe means you get to go to heaven, or that the white stone may be what they gave to athletes when they won in the Olympic Games. When they won, when they won a race or broad jump or, or hurdles or what's that pole? That you, the pole vault. Um, I don't know if they had those in this day, but they gave Olympians a stone with their name written on it that they would go and get their trophy. And their trophies were really made out of gold. I don't know what ours or the medals and all that stuff are, are made of. But they would get their trophy if, when they handed in the stone that had their name on it. And if they didn't, and they did that because the games, the Olympic games, were even in, even in the time of the first church, they were kind of rowdy. I think the Olympic games are still a little bit rowdy, maybe. But they didn't want to, their prize to get stolen. And so they redeemed this this, they redeemed the stone for their prize. Either way, whatever either one of these things are, they represent a, a ticket or a pass to some good prize or a blessing in life, which is a contrast to whatever it means to be, to, for something to happen with the sword of his mouth, being chastised by the sword of his mouth. We studied the book of Revelation in, on Wednesday nights um, two years ago, I think it was. And we went verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the whole thing and looked at several different approaches to interpreting it. And a lot of us, if the Hal Lindsey thing and, and some other preachers which are trying to figure out what it means for the future, and for them, nearly all of it's the future, uh, we had a... I came out of that study with kind of a eclectic, a, a gathered little parts from all of the different ways to interpret it. But one of the ideas is the historicist approach, which means that every section of the book of Revelation applies to some certain time in history, and that this, the letter to the church at Pergamos, represents 313 A.D., which is when Emperor Constantine... Uh, decided that Christianity was going to be the new government-endorsed religion. Um, and so the, the letter to Pergamos represents that. And some thought that was a good thing, because at least it meant there wasn't going to be more persecution, at least not of Christians. It actually started a persecution for a lot of other people, but it was seemed good because it ended a, that persecution. But it also got the government in bed with the church. And the church agreed to everything that the government talked about for that protection and to get more power in everything. And eventually the church actually becomes an extension of government to some degree. And so we don't want that in the church today. And I believe it's a warning for us not to compromise what our beliefs and our faith are for any reason at all. And there are a lot of different ways that we can compromise. There's been a lot of compromise in Europe and in Canada and in Australia and other places in the world about not talking about certain things. And we should always be loving, but 
But sin is still sin. And our belief in Jesus and who He stands for, who He is, is something that we cannot compromise on. So if there's one word for us that comes from Pergamos, or Pergamum, it's that do not compromise. Do not compromise. Do not compromise your faith for any reason. And it's the faith that the Holy Spirit endorses in you. It's not the faith that I deal out to you. You're responsible. Each of you are responsible because of the Holy Spirit in you to determine what you believe and you don't compromise on that. We don't have an officially endorsed doctrine in this church, except that Jesus is Jesus. Never compromise, no matter how inviting or enticing it looks like. Because that's what the children of Israel did with the Moabite women that Balaam taught them. The Nicolaitans, which I haven't mentioned, but it's essentially the same thing. And the church agreed, let's just keep the peace and we can just go ahead and have our um, sexually immoral practices and just do them right there in the church and, uh, and meat sacrifice to idols, that's a whole other teaching, but they were not supposed to compromise in that way because to them, it was significant. So we do not compromise and whatever the Spirit convicts you of that's what compromise is this is a different kind of message than I normally would preach but it is straight out of the word and it's still all seven letters to the churches actually apply to the church today. And we've got to find out what it's saying to us in order for us to be in the right place. And I believe now, oh, if, you've, if you study biblical prophecy, a lot of stuff that's going on, and I'll go ahead and say it in Israel right now, uh, is talked about in the Bible. And I'm not saying, look out, it's coming tomorrow or anything. But um, some people are thinking that. And we want to be where Jesus, if he's writing a letter to us today, we want to make sure that he says, all I found is good things about you. The church at Chandler, good things. I've heard about how you've taken care of others. I've heard how you've stood up for Jesus. I've heard how you've sang worship songs to me in community gatherings. There's a, there's a long list of things that Jesus can point to. At least we're not going to be one of those churches where he said, yeah, I couldn't find anything good about you. There's a list of things that he can find good about us. My prayer is that he doesn't find anything. But this one thing I have against you, that's what we do not want. Pray with me, if you will. Go ahead and stand. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for your word and that 
Even 2,000 years later, this word applies to us today. I pray that each of us could examine our own hearts and see, see where we are in this, in this letter. Is there any place in it that, that refers to us? Issues that we're having with compromise with our culture or compromise with, with any entity that gives us more power. I pray that we'd, we'd examine even our tax-exempt status. What does that mean for us today as a church? That we, Are we in any way compromising? And Father, I pray that you'd show us and just show us. Give us a word for how we can fix that, whatever it is. Because you blessed us over and over and we want to be faithful. And do what we can to be deserving of that blessing. We can't be deserving of our salvation, but we can deserve the blessing that you give us. We can be worthy of it. And Father, I pray that we once we've been led to what that is that remedy for an issue that once we've we've seen what that is Lord that we will just be faithful and obedient to fix it that that would empower us to be who we're supposed to be in Jesus name to be the body of Christ in the world today that where we go step by step Everywhere our foot falls, that we would spread the love of Jesus day in, day out. Not what we do on church on a Sunday morning, but what we do every day. With kind words and encouragement. That we'd speak Jesus everywhere we go. Just like that song, there's power in the name of Jesus. That we wouldn't be ashamed of that, that name. That the things that we say and do would bring glory to you. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.